Hello listeners, Dennis Wisco here. Here's something to think about. Does your employee agreement, does your 1099 agreement, how indicative is that agreement with the organization that you work for or that you are going to be partnering with through your 1099? How indicative is that agreement with the business relationship that will be formed through that employee agreement? This is what we explore today with Candace Crane. Candace Crane is a people strategy consultant. A people strategy is when you begin to intensely scrutinize and introspectively scrutinize your balance sheet and your income and your expenses and the different line items of expenses like salary. If you scrutinize how you pay your people, that's thinking people strategy now. So we go pretty deep into this, so you won't want to miss this episode. And I can't forget that Wisco Weekly is brought to you by Comotion Miami. Comotion Miami brings together the brave new leaders of the urban mobility revolution. Their event is occurring April 2nd and 3rd in Miami. Again, listeners will get some kind of discount coming my way, and I will announce that shortly. I will be there. Hopefully I will see you there. Also, I want to welcome on a new partner onto Wisco Weekly, Automotive Mastermind. You may have heard some episodes that we did over the last couple of years, and I'm thrilled that they are partnering up with the show. And so you'll be hearing a lot more from Automotive Mastermind in the coming year. And sincerely, listeners, thanks for tuning in. I really do actually appreciate it. You guys continue to listen to these episodes and... um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that you guys keep tuning in. So thank you for that. And if you have some ideas, please send my way. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff uh, I got for you for the next at least six months, man. And then the next six months after that, we'll see what, what that comes up. But there's a lot of good things coming up your way. And so thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. And let's get into the show. Tune in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitete, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly. This is the podcast that shares the new business models for the mobility of people and goods. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco. Alongside to my left is my good friend, business lady, and the sultry voice of Wisco Weekly, Kelly Cruz. Good to be here, Dennis. We haven't recorded in a little bit, so... How's Glad that, to be together. How's that voice of yours doing? You know, it's a little rusty today, oh, but we'll make it work. it's very sultry. And it's a very appropriate to the conference that we're at. Listeners, we are at the Women in Automotive Conference in Rancho Mirage in California. Uh, it's a conference that promotes, obviously, women in automotive. There's lots of, lots of educational topics, lots of empower, empowering topics. Uh, this is my first time here. Kelly, I know this is your first time as well. What's, your, what's your first impression? 
you used a great word, as you just mentioned, empowering. So it's great to see women coming together and talking about important topics and whether it's related specifically to automotive or just women in general. Uh, again, great to see coming together and sharing ideas to improve upon whatever business area they may be in. And listeners, it's one of my observation is that in this room full of women, there's definitely um, a combination of older and younger women in this group and certainly mature and younger okay women don't sorry. like the word older right. so so there is a there's a pc version of how i should be describing this kelly thank you there's a mature crowd and there is a can I, is younger appropriate sure stuff? and a younger crowd of women and this definitely is going to shape the future of automotive insofar as you do have a mature group of women who have kind of created this platform for younger hungrier women to progress in the industry. And we have one of those women here today as a guest on the show. Candace Crane has 15 years of automotive sales and operations experience in a variety of markets. As the organizational development director of a large automotive group in the Midwest, Candace designed and led a transformational change that replaced the F&I silo with cross-functionally cross trained recent college graduates. This and other changes dramatically improved the customer experience and reduced employee turnover. Kelly, we're about customer experience on the show. Absolutely. Candace has extensive experience in talent management and is considered an SME in recruiting and retention strategies for high turnover environments. Candace completed her undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin, a proud Badger. Yes. And holds an MS in organizational development. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show, Miss Candace Crane. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you for being on the show, Candace. Certainly, as I mentioned earlier, it, it seems like you are one of the hungrier uh, women at this event. I've had the chance to research a number of women at this conference, and certainly you definitely portray yourself as someone who is not even just an up-and-comer. You're, you're just, you're just, you, you want to get out there and you want to help uh, companies and people in the automotive space. If those, if people just happens to be women, even better. Um, one of the things, Candace, that uh, we had talked about that I would like to hear more about this is that you launched your consulting business at this Women in Automotive conference back in 2015. Correct. Can you maybe share with us, first off, why you decided to use this conference to launch your consulting business and what specifically do you do with your consulting business? Sure, yeah. So uh, 2015, I was I had just finished up my master's in organizational development and was considering becoming a consultant with one of the large consulting firms, um, Accenture and Deloitte, and began interviewing with those firms and, and found that um, I was incredibly passionate about the automotive space or the sector, the industry. And as I'm going through the interview process with these large organizations, they didn't really give a lot of weight or emphasis to automotive, specifically retail automotive. When automotive came up in the interview process, it was more along the lines of manufacturing. And um, I'm really passionate about improving the customer experience. And I, I was fortunate enough to work for a very progressive automotive group in Minnesota where we um, implemented a lot of changes that I'm speaking about today. And we implemented those changes back in 2010. So I was fortunate enough to have this kind of unique background and I, and I wanted to be able to be that agent of change for the industry. So um, I thought to myself, if I'm going to do consulting, why not do it 
in an industry that I'm passionate about, in a space that I have experience in, um, in an industry that that needs change agents. Um, and the next question then was, well, how do I get this thing off the ground? And, and the Women Automotive Conference at that point was just promoting themselves as the, as the first annual. Uh, and so I thought, well, what, what better of a way to get my message out than in an, in a conference where there are other like-minded women, people who are looking to, to strengthen and to promote other like-minded women. And, and so I wrote a white paper and brought it to the conference, and that was five years ago. And uh, today I'm, I'm consulting with both dealers and manufacturers. I'm, I'm a global speaker. I had the opportunity to speak in a, at a Brazilian conference uh, this summer. I'll be speaking in Chile in March. Uh, so if it weren't for this conference, I, I wouldn't be where I am today. What, what was the white paper on? The white paper was on recruiting. So I, I, I leveraged the um, research that I did for my master's, and it was on how millennials look for jobs and, and what's important to them in their job search. Um, so I, I took that data and I repurposed it specific to automotive. So in, in our industry, one of the things that I'm, I'm very vocal about is that we need to do a better job of of creating an opportunity that is attractive to the marketplace. You know, we, we, we struggle as an industry with both recruiting and retention, and we oftentimes think that it's the, the, the fault of the labor market. Well, they don't want to work the hours. They don't want the, the, the commission compensation plans. Um, they're, just, they're just made differently now. You know, the, the younger generation just made differently, and, and surely that is the case because the value systems are different. But the reality is our opportunity is not attractive. And when you combine that with um, incredibly low unemployment rates and the fact that we're competing for talent against Fortune 500 companies that are doing a much better job than we are as an industry of creating an opportunity where you can have some sort of work-life balance, where you are empowered to make decisions, where you have more stable pay, where there's a more defined career path. Uh, stereotypically, we don't have those things in this industry, partly because we are a whole bunch of small businesses that are very decentralized and partly because we're stuck in our own ways. And so um, I, I took that data from my research and I, and I put it together in a white paper where I really promoted why we're having such a difficult time recruiting and tried to get that into the hands of as many people as I could. And, and that led to more opportunities to evangelize the message. Is there, is, is that on your website? Is that white paper? The white or, paper? How, how, uh, how, I think it might be. I think it's definitely on my LinkedIn. I'm not sure if it's on my website. If, if anything, I would like to get a copy of it and sure. put it, share it on the episode page for listeners. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you talk about some of these um, you know, I think you aptly described the car business and the kind of the male domination and, and sometimes the challenges that not even just women face, but millennials face in that you have long hours, the, you know, with a commission based pay, which commission based pay, I'm, I'm to a certain extent, I'm hoping that that goes away. Me too. <laughs> because, I mean, this doesn't really bode well for the customer experience these days Correct. when so much is done online. Um, but how, how else have you been able to, um, influence the industry in getting them away from, let's say, uh, a con or commission-based pay plan? Well, the good news is the labor market is influencing the industry. My job is to help the operators understand how to create new compensation plans that attract the people that are entering the labor market or the people that are available in the labor market. Mm. So my, my job is to is to get the, the dealership principals, operators, general managers to start thinking about compensation differently. And, and it's difficult for a couple of reasons. One, they don't know any better. So the, the, the compensation plans that we have in place today have been in place for the past 20, 30 years. So th this is a, a challenge of you, you don't know what you don't know, number one. And then there's also a personal bias. So many of the people that are 
I shouldn't say many, the majority of the people that are leading the operations in, in successful stores today um, grew up under this very traditional 100% commission-based compensation plan. And, and if you think about the generational value systems, uh, the baby boomers and Gen Xers were, generally speaking, pretty attracted to this variable pay. They grew up during times of strong economic growth. And so for them, it was about give me the opportunity and I will take advantage of it. Whereas the millennials and the Gen Zs grew up during times of a lot more instability. You know, the millennials watched their parents go through very difficult times during the recession, watch them have to sacrifice time away from family and friends only to have their 401k you know, either destroyed or halfway wiped out and to have to push their retirements back because of what was going on in the economy, which had nothing to do with what their parents did or did, did not contribute. Uh -huh. So the millennials value system is just different and they're, they're much more risk adverse. Um, so in order for us to be able to attract, which is now the largest generation in the workforce, we have to have a compensation plan or more importantly, a total rewards program that is attractive to this, this level of candidate. And, and that includes more stable pay. It doesn't mean that we take away comp, uh, commission, doesn't mean that we take away bonus. It just means that we have to reevaluate the percentage of guaranteed pay versus variable pay in our in our compensation plans. It also means we have to look at schedules and, and this, uh, this idea that you have to work in our industry, we call it a bell to bell or an open to close. So that from the time that the store opens, time that the store closes, um, you know, no other retailer is going to require their employees to work that, yet we still kind of expect it. So my job is to help get the operators to think about their business differently and think about how to leverage their resources differently so that they can um, improve that customer experience, be able to attract and retain better candidates, and then ultimately improve um, their, their profitability as well. I think that's a great point because there's a lot of inter industries out there today that have that mix of base pay and then incentive pay. And like you said, everyone wants to be incentivized, but you want to feel comfort that you know that you're going to get some amount regardless of, you know, as long as you're there and you're doing your job and you're competent. I was going to ask about when you present these compensation plans, do you find that the organizations you present them to say, you know, how it may be I don't know if they would be so bold to say would it be different for women or men, but they're presented as this applies across the board, right? It doesn't matter, even though we're we're in a society where typically women are paid lower than men, but when you present these plans, presumably it's applied based on talent, not gender. <laughs> yeah, I would say, honestly, I don't really gear them much towards gender. It's more about the generation, that if you want to attract a younger generation, um, i.e. the millennials, you, you have to, to look in the mirror and, and really identify what is attractive and what is unattractive. And typically it starts and stops with compensation because if the compensation, similar to pricing on a car, if the pricing on the car isn't at least at market, your, your consumer, your potential consumers are not even going to consider that vehicle, right? So it's the same concept. If your compensation plan isn't doesn't have at least a fair, to your point, base pay to where I can get my bills paid, knowing that if I show up to work, I can at least get my bills paid. Doesn't mean that I'm gonna live this extravagant lifestyle, just means I can at least get my bills paid. Um, they're not even going to consider it. So uh, it's, it's more about attracting the millennials. And then of course, I think, Subsequent to that, women just generally speaking won't even consider those types of plans, and that's not the case, of course, across the board. But um, I think as women, we're a little bit more logical about what we jump into, and we do a better job of assessing risk. And although there may be a huge upside to a 100% commission plan, there's also a huge downside, and mm -hmm. and there's a huge cost that comes with that. And I think generally speaking, women do a better job of kind of navigating that risk more effectively, and, and are a little bit less um, 
willing to, to jump into those types of, of risk risky plans. Mm-hmm. Candice, can we maybe even dive a little deeper? I, I love this topic of managing risk. And maybe through your eyes, can you enlighten us? If you are advising a single female or a single millennial to join the car business and presuming whatever pay structure they have, what kind of checklist of managing risk do you go through in order to advise that millennial? So for instance, you know, if millennials are applying for the car business, they're going to be a product specialist. That's a general entry level position in the car business. And presuming that dealership does have a, uh, a base salary plus incentive, how do you then advise that person to go through a risk management internal strategy in their head to assess, okay, is this job good for me? Great question. And I actually did this recently with my nephew, who is a millennial. He's, uh, let's see, what year are we in? 2019. He graduated college in 2018. And he told me his sophomore year of college that he wanted to go into the car business. And I thought, yeah, you'll change your mind. You know, that's that's cute. Okay, sure, sure. Nobody wants to go in the car business. You'll change your mind. Um, but sure enough, he was very determined, and um, uh, he he ended up in the car business. But what 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 I what I guided him on um, to answer your question was first and foremost. What is the culture of the of the organization that you're considering? And I would give this advice to any entry level candidate starting their career. Um, how do how does the company present themselves in the interview process? Are they respectful to you? Are they on time for the interview? Are they giving you as much information about the job as they're requesting about you in terms of your background and what you're going to do for them? Right. Um, that if if they're trying to if they if they're making you sell yourself on why you'd be a good fit or all they're doing is trying to scare you into how difficult this job is going to be, which unfortunately we see a lot of in the car business, um, that's not the right culture because you want to be with an organization that will invest in you as much as you're going to invest in them. So the first thing I would look at is culture. And that is probably a, a, like a huge challenge for, let's say, specifically dealerships themselves, because I know for for better, for worse, you know, you got to love folks, executives in the dealership world, but there is this nasty tradition in the business of wanting to just mess with people who are in the who are interviewing where you know what's supposed to be one interview that should last an hour turns into hey you're here for four hours and hey so i just spoke for you to 10 minutes hold on i'll be back and then all of a sudden they come back 30 minutes later and then all of a sudden there's two more people coming in wanting to talk to you and who have nothing to do with hiring you but they kind of mess with you in that way. So yeah. that culture, I mean, if anything, maybe that's like a red flag for for, sure. for listeners that if you are going through that experience, then in terms of what that is communicating about that dealership culture, I don't know, maybe that's something you want to well, stay and, away And from. unfortunately, as you're describing that to me, I think that sounds a lot like the customer experience as well, I was right? going to say so the same <laughs> thing. I was like, <laughs> yeah. that's what I feel like when I'm going through the sales process. Yeah, if, if, they're, if they're going to do that to you, play those types of games in the interview process, they're going to expect you will play those types of games with mm-hmm. customers in terms of how you you know how you sell, which I personally would not want to be a part of, and I, I would not um, support people that I know and care about wanting to be a part of either. So yeah, I, th- I think that culture is, is the first thing, and then the second thing that I would have them consider is, um, you know, from a compensation perspective, there's no right plan. I, I am not a proponent of this one plan works mm-hmm. at every store because you, you've got different problems that you're trying to solve and you've got different labor uh, conditions, different marketing conditions that you have to consider when you're building compensation plans. So when you are looking and reviewing the plan, I would want to know what is my expected earnings in year one? So not a, not what could I make, okay? What, what should I expect to make? What do you expect me to produce? 
And therefore, what should I expect to make? Because we oftentimes in this industry talk about potential. You can make $100,000 a year, but we're only gonna guarantee you minimum wage. So, well, that's a lot of difference. There's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of variation between minimum wage and $100,000. Um, and I often do a, an analysis for my clients where I'll show them the relationship between compensation and production. And what we find is the percentage of people that are actually making six figures or more is, is less than 5%. So here oh, you're, you know, your recruiting strategy is to go to market saying you can make $100,000. But the reality is you've got one, possibly two people in the whole store in a, in a production, whether that be sales, service, or, or technicians that are actually making that. So certainly you can talk about you have the potential to do that, but what are the expectations in terms of performance on a monthly basis? And then what can I expect to make on an annual basis? And how often does that plan change? And how much in control am I over that plan? Um, there, are, unfortunately, are still some games that we play in our compensation plans to push new cars versus used cars or vice versa, used cars versus new cars. So, you know, I want to be in an environment where I'm doing what's right for the customer. And if the customer is coming in to look at a new car and we end up landing on a used car because that's what right that's what's right for them, great. But I don't want to have to be penalized financially because I'm taking the customer down the journey that that makes sense for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our compensation plans as an industry, unfortunately, are designed to manage behavior. They're designed to um, ensure profitability, which don't get me wrong, profitability is, is why we're all here. So I, I get that. But we also have to consider the employee experience and, and the customer experience. I think it's this idea of moving towards, it's probably so uh, faux pas and like the, the car and the automotive world, but like being more objective. So like you said, if you're focusing on customer experience and being more objective about, I'm not trying to sell you the car that makes me money. I'm trying to sell you the car that you want. Customers are happier, but it also more equates with having that portion of the, the comp being base pay because then they're not as incentivized to push the car that, like you said, it's used versus new or a certain car that's the special of the day. Correct. So it's just kind of more of an objective sales approach. Yeah, it's volume, right? I mean, every, every opportunity, every customer that you interact with is a new opportunity for you to create an experience where they want to do business with you, right? So it, it shouldn't matter if that if that transaction takes place today, tomorrow, or in six months, and if it's a new car, used car, or um, a lease, right? It's it's all about making sure that that experience is so good that that customer becomes a customer for life. Mm-hmm. The asking about the comp plan, I don't. This is this is a generalization, but I feel like millennials shy away from money talk. And I, I can certainly say that, you know, I, I work with a couple different contractors and they don't really know how to talk about money. You know, when, when I'm assigning them a project and I say, well, this is how much I'm willing to pay, it, it kind of stops after that. And I almost want them to ask, okay, what is included? You know, what do you contractor understand this amount to be to you? Do, are, do you see that with millennials uh, on your end that they are afraid to talk about money? So I know we're, we're, you're stressing to talk about the comp, but I feel like even b- by you talking about it, they may just go in, okay, so what is your comp plan? And then they leave it at that. And I feel like that doesn't give a proper uh, holistic view of the job they may be undertaking. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that um, for sure millennials and, and I think even, I mean, even older millennials and younger Gen Xers, I mean, I, I think that it's a, it's a compensation is a, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk mm-hmm. about. Right. And, and you, especially in an interview, because you don't want to appear 
um, ungrateful. You don't right. want to, you know, you, you, right. you want to make sure that you're managing your, your expectations and your brand a certain way as you're going through that interview process. So I believe it's, it's the responsibility of the, of the employer to make sure that the candidate understands not only how the compensation plan works, but what the expectations are. Because essentially it's, it's an agreement, right? I'm going to reward you financially when you hit certain milestones or expectations. So the most important part of that compensation plan is, is that the candidate or the future employee needs to understand what is expected of them. Transparency. Yeah, full transparency, right? So it, if, it's, if it's more than one page, it's not going to be transparent. It's not going to be easy to understand. Um, if, if it varies every single month or if there's components of it that are um, that are dependent upon other components or there's mm-hmm. there's qualifiers, there's all these like crazy things that we do as an industry. And, and we're not the only industry that does this, but I think we certainly um, probably are, are still we, it's more relevant. It's more prevalent in our industry, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the commission plans. And you would see in other industries. I've, I've done recruiting for um, companies in other industries. And, and, and by far, we have the most complicated commission based plans that I've seen um, in comparison to other industries. So I think it's on us, right? It's on us as employers and as an industry to help educate our candidates, regardless of, of age, that they understand how they're getting paid, what is expected of them, what's in their control, maybe some of the things that they don't control, right? And uh, that way on day one, we're starting on, on, on even ground and we've got a good foundation versus on day one, you're coming in with one perspective, I'm coming in with something else. And by day five, we're like, oh, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Everyone's we, unhappy. Yeah, did like, we make uh, a bad decision here, right? On both ends. Like, this isn't what I signed up for. And you're thinking, gosh, I thought you were somebody different. And now we're talking about a term that happens in the 30 days, which is just incredibly costly and disruptive. Hence to, the turnover to that you're trying to help correct companies avoid. Correct, yes. There's a dealership in, it's an independent store in Portland, Oregon that I had a chance to meet. And I thought one of the things they did pretty well in explaining their comp plan, and and you know, it, I, on one hand, it's really well, on really good. On the other hand, I could see it also being some form of deception. But they basically broke down the base salary, the the also the benefits and the monetary benefit that it translates to. Um, so much so that at the end of the day, when somebody's looking at this comp plan, an entry level person could be making a hundred. Well, technically a hundred thousand sure. dollars, right? But their base salary is forty thousand. But oh, sure. hey, look, you get medical benefits, and that translates to six thousand uh, dollars a year. Sure. You get company benefits, that translates to four thousand. So that was very transparent. But again, maybe it's just I'm. Uh, there's a part of me that's jaded about the car business that I also know that there are some things that's not being told on the other side that that the that the employer, the dealership, is. You know, they're saying, okay, well, here's your pa- here. You have a hundred thousand dollar compensation package, and and there's some company benefits you get. Eh, but we we did Not that two we did that two years ago. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I think showing the value of the benefits that you're providing is a powerful tool, right? So that you know, as an employer, I'm investing in you not just from a direct compensation perspective, but also indirectly. The the value of the benefits are this. I do think that there's some that's a good maybe best practice. I don't know that I would put it into a compensation plan because to your point, it mm. seems a little bit deceiving. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of, look, when you're building your compensation plans, you got to figure out what you're going to stand for. And, and it, it could be you are going to be 
the most provocative dealer on the block, meaning you are going to pay the most, whether that be in potential or guarantee. It could be that you're going to have the best schedules. It could be that you're going to bring in lunch for your employees every single day, not just Saturdays. It could be that you're going to provide uniforms for all of your employees, and they're really nice uniforms. They're Patagonia, and they're nice, you know, they're nice, cool stuff, right? So you just have to decide what what you're going to stand for, and then to you know to emphasize that in, in your compensation plan, sure. But um, yeah, there definitely is a fine line between um, being a little deceitful and, and being you know, too transparent. And then maybe that can be seen as a little deceitful. Is, is your consulting work, what, what portion would you say is more for individuals versus companies? Um, it's all companies. So I, okay. I consult with uh, both dealers and manufacturers, okay. um, specifically on people strategies. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a broad lens, but it's, it's improving their business through the lens of their people. So do we have the right people in the right roles? Are we rewarding them correctly? Um, and then what does our culture look like? You know, do, h- how do we move our organization forward? And, and right now, moving our organization forward means significantly improving the customer experience because we have a lot of disruptors out there that are forcing us to change. Um, technology is changing the mm-hmm. way that, that we live, work, and interact, interact with one another. So uh, we certainly have to respond in terms of a customer improvement in, in that way. Um, and then we've got this incredibly tight labor market, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's like next impossible to find good people. And that's not an auto problem. That's mm-hmm. a U.S. problem, which yeah. is good because it means our economy is strong. We want our economy to re- remain strong. But um, these unemployment rates, we haven't seen these types of unemployment rates since the 1960s. And it was a very different time then, right? And, and so y- you have skills that are changing quickly. You've got uh, misaligned expectations in, in terms of what the labor market wants and, and what businesses are willing to provide. Certainly, that's the case in our industry. Um, so, so there is a lot of reason for dealers to have to evolve their business right now. And, and my job is to help them to remain viable and sustainable by kind of reinventing. Mm-hmm. I fear one of one of, and I think you've experienced this too, Kel, where we we go to these dealerships now that have changed their comp structure. They've relabeled the employee to not be a salesperson, but a product specialist. And while they are a product specialist telling you everything that they know about the car, the one thing that a product specialist does not do, and I think that, you know, we're of the ages of 40, Candace, I'm I'm not sure how old you are. I'll be 40 in January. Hey, (laughs) happy birthday. Thanks. Um, But... The one thing about, I think, us, when we go into a store, of course, we want that product specialist. But the one thing about a product specialist that does not happen, they don't want to also, quote unquote, earn your business. And that is the tradition of of a commission-based salesperson, right, is that they will they will earn your business. They will, of course, try to sell you the car as, you know, at, at MSRP or close to that or maybe even above that. But... Is there such a balance that a product specialist can be taught in order to earn the business as opposed to just being a product specialist? Yeah, well, you bring up a great point, and that's around pricing and how we price our cars. So what you're describing is is an environment that's disjointed. So you have product specialists that are probably paid a base pay plus volume, mm-hmm. but the environment is such that they're still negotiating. So if there's negotiating taking place, it's very difficult to truly be that customer-focused product specialist because you're, in order to transact, you have to land on the price, right? And the value of that car to you could be different than the value of that car to me. And it can also be very subjective based on the time of the month and what incentives we're trying to hit. And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, to the dealer's credit, oftentimes the manufacturer is forcing these, yeah. you know, these negotiations as well based on the games that they're playing w- with the dealer. So um, this isn't just the big bad dealer deciding to 
take as much as they can from the customer. A lot of times it's the dealer having to work with the manufacturer in order to get those cars sold and, and maximize their profitability. Um, so I'm also a big proponent of going to a one pricing selling model. I, I do think that in order for us to evolve our customer experience, in order for us to be able to attract the kind of people that we want to attract, eliminating negotiating just makes sense. I mean, we as consumers in the US, what else do we negotiate for? I mean, rarely anything. I mean, you can argue that housing we're still kind of negotiating for, but there's so much pricing transparency around housing in, in today's marketplace that um, you know the market sets the price, which is exactly what's happening in, in automotive as well. Um, and there are tools and technologies out there now that are giving the consumer the leg up on what we used to have as an industry. So it's not like we have any special knowledge about what the prices are. The market's setting the prices. So it's in our best interest, I believe, to just put the right price in the vehicle, educate our employees, our product specialists, as to why we put that price on the vehicle. So rather than selling you and negotiating about what the car is worth, my job is to now defend the price. So Dennis, the price is the way that it is because of the make, the model, the scarcity, the time that we've had the vehicle for, what we've um, done to the vehicle, what we've done to the vehicle. Exactly. I mean, all of it's a lot. It makes sense, right? I mean, you come up every every store has a has a floor in terms of pricing. So just because they may not post their lowest price, they know what their lowest mm-hmm. price is. So why not just put that price out there? Empower your salespeople to defend the price and to create that relationship and to expedite things. So if if I'm telling you as your product specialist that you can purchase this vehicle in 60 minutes, but here's the price and here's why the price is the price but let me tell you let me refocus your energy on getting you out of here and making you happy you're going to buy the car but if we have to go back and forth and back and forth back and forth back and forth then and you're wasting five hours with me why not go waste another five hours down the street to try to get a better price you know and and so now we're arguing over over pennies and no matter where you buy you're frustrated i'm frustrated and nobody's happy right so i would like to think that in our lifetime the car business will get to a more universally accepted no haggle pricing strategy. I'm not so optimistic about it these days anymore. And only because I do believe that, you know, millennials are changing that in their behaviors because they're not really as concerned about negotiating. But because the manufacturers are constantly changing their incentives, and then when those incentives are communicated to the dealership, when ads are ran in your region and you're seeing all of a sudden a car that was once sold at MSRP is now $10,000 off, I think it's always going to bode some form of, well, you know, as, as Kelly over here, Kelly loves to negotiate. I, I think you're still going to have a good amount of people who believe that, well, that price was MSRP last month and now they're doing a $10,000 discount. There must be some kind of negotiation. I just, I don't yeah. know. I, I, I mean, look, obviously, I don't think we're going to solve that in this room here, right? Yep, but yep. I, I don't know how, I've, I've known dealerships to try to employ a, a, a one price strategy and they abandon it. I mm-hmm. think in, even at, a, at an automaker level, I think Lexus uh, tried to do that. I think they, still, a, they still have Lexus Plus. It's still a model that they have, but it's, very, it's only 12 stores across the country. And, and I think they actually, did they have it with more stores and then they shrink it down? Um, there were some of the original stores that have gone off of it, but there's yeah. also been some stores, some new stores that have gone on to it. Because um, that, that's the other thing, too. Yeah. If, if I recall, there was a Lexus store in Mission Viejo that adopted it, and then they were getting eaten alive by another competing Lexus store that was, you know, they were the other Lexus store is still about 20 miles away. But there was lots of customers that would still go to the 
to the store that was 20 miles away and still haggle and negotiate. And like, sometimes this is what customers do to themselves too. I mean, sure, let's, let's sure. be real. Yeah. So also, so I'm a tough sell when I, when Dennis says I like to negotiate, it's because I want to feel like I'm getting the best price. I sure. do not want to be there for three or four hours. So maybe it's because you seem trustworthy, but the way that you explained it, Candace, of kind of walking through with transparency, here's the price, here's why it's that price. This is the lowest price we're going to give you. And we can either get the deal done or not. I'm more inclined to say that works for me because time is money. And so if you tell me and 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 I know that with honesty, I'm going to get out of there, then I'm likely to come back next time because you stuck true to your word and then I didn't have to spend three to four hours at the dealership. Yeah. And I think the misconception around price too is that every car is the same price and that's not the case. So let's say, Kelly, you come into the store and, and you're looking at a particular make and model. And let's say it's a, it's a new car and, and you're like, you know, I like this vehicle, but it's just $700 more than what I was prepared to spend. I may offer up another solution, which could be a similar um, model, but maybe it's aged. So I've been sitting on that car now for six months. So I've got the ability to go deeper in terms of the discount. So I'm not negotiating with you. I'm just providing another option for you, right? right? So you can take option one, which is all the features that you want at this price, or you can take option two, which maybe has a little bit less features and it's an aged car. So I'm comfortable selling it for less. Here's the, you know, here's the price. So, but that again requires strategy and, and and training and empowerment of your sales team. Um, and oftentimes as an employee, I either don't know that that's even an option. I don't know what the strategy is. I don't know that an aged unit, my managers are willing to sell for less. Um, so I'm, I'm completely not empowered, right? So we start the negotiation process and I just have to walk out of the room and bring in manager right. number one to try to take the next swing at you, right? Yep. So it's, um, you, you know, it, does, it doesn't mean that it's, e that it's the same price in every vehicle and it doesn't mean that you can't adjust those prices. Those prices can be adjusted up or adjusted down every single week, but you have to be able to defend the price of the customer and the price should not change based on a negotiation because then what's, you know, what I held, held for you and I didn't help hold for Dennis, now all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's not a very fair practice in terms of how I do it. But who got the better deal between me and her, though? <laughs> <laughs> Probably Kelly. No, I'm just kidding. Of course. Of course. We're at the Women in Automotive Conference, yeah, exactly. of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, exactly. Well, so, Candace, another thing I, I'm curious about in, in your career and, and maybe just personal life in general. So, I, first off, um, you just did this backpacking trip in Patagonia. I did, yes. I are did. you like an adrenaline junkie? Totally. Oh, you yes, are? I'm an adrenaline junkie, yes. Uh, so That should be in my bio, actually. I should add that to it. Yes. <laughs> be fun. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm curious, as, as an adrenaline junkie then, has has that helped you out in your career then like is does again i i really do i, I i'm going to stick to what i said to you about you earlier in that i find you to be one of the more hungrier women in this space well, i appreciate that thank you yeah obviously that it fits with you being an adrenaline junkie yeah yeah uh, you know yeah. um how how else has that helped you you know, someone when when you chase adrenaline, right? You you have to take risks, and you have to be prepared for things to work out, and you have to be prepared for things to not work out. Because, uh, look, I had this amazing time in Patagonia. I hiked the W Trek, which is five days, sixty-two miles. I did it solo. It was solo, solo. I had no guide. It was unbelievably wow. difficult. I barely speak Spanish. Um, it was it was emotionally and physically very very difficult and. Um, I came back and told my family and friends, like, you know, that was like a 10. I still want to chase adrenaline, but maybe at like a seven or like six and a half, seven, like the 10 was pretty extreme. But I think in terms of answer your question, how it, how it helps me is 
you, you know, you get right in, right? Like you just have to have the confidence to, to jump in. And especially early in my career, um, I, I came into the scene with these very provocative thoughts and opinions and perspectives. I was confident in those perspectives because I knew that they worked because I, I had the opportunity to implement them at a store in, in Minnesota, at a dealer group in Minnesota. So this wasn't just, hey, I woke up one day feeling this way. This was, as a consumer, I know this is a better way to shop. As an employee, this is a better way to work. And as a strategist, this works. I've seen it. I've seen it work from a profitability standpoint, right? So um, I, I came in with with a very loud voice. I was I was looking to be provocative. And um, what I love about this industry is 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 the industry loves people like me, right? It's 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 not always easy and it's difficult to navigate. But um, there's a lot of Type A personalities in this industry. It's uh-huh. it's small business owners, family family run businesses. Most of these business owners have not worked outside of automotive. They're not used to regulations or like corporate governance. So whatever goes, goes, right? And and that can be incredibly exciting. It can be incredibly dangerous and can be incredibly frustrating. Um, but for a personality like mine, this industry works. I do not do well in large organizations. Um, I'm, an, I'm an organizational development like specialist, but I don't do well in the HR vertical. So, um, you know, I, I think that as, as frustrating as this industry can be, there's also a significant amount of opportunity. And for me, working with type A personalities, it, it tends to, to work better because they, um, they like the, the gumption. They like the, the aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not afraid to say, hey, look, you got you to gotta back down. And, and I've learned, you know, to, to do that from time to time. So, yeah. I love it. You're like uh, you're kind of like the the armor for you know for 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 millennials getting into the business. It's like yeah, you're the one that's so. fighting their battles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I certainly look. I, like I said, I mean, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I had early in my career because if if it weren't for that, I think I still would have these perspectives and point of view, but I wouldn't have the experience to fall back on, right? And and um, you know, like we talked about, Dennis, in our earlier call that. I think this kind of a conference is is really about giving women the edge, right? It's it's not so much about having to pat everybody on the back. I mean, we just met a young lady right before we started this podcast who was here of, of on her own accord. Mm. She um, is in the is in the business, isn't with a dealer dealership Flew today. Flew out from New York. Flew out from New York. I mean, that you know, a woman like that doesn't need a pat on the back. A woman like that needs an edge. A woman like that needs a mentor. A woman like that needs information and education that will help her, um, that will give her, you know, that step above her, her her peers and probably male peers, to be honest. And listeners, let's make no mistake about this too. This adrenaline junkie that we have here, it doesn't just play itself out in, in, in the work that she does. But one of the other interesting things that we had spoke about on the phone, Candace, was the fact that you don't have a car. You don't own a car. You've been carless for three years. Correct. So you are finding other ways to get around. And I think that's very commendable because that in and of itself, I don't know how much time you actually, well, I'm sure before you were probably spending, you know, a couple hours a week unnecessary but now you probably figured out the system and how you get around. Can you maybe just share with us your method of getting around now? Sure. Yeah. So I um, I get around a couple of ways. I ride my bike a lot. I, I live in a in an urban setting, so I live in downtown Minneapolis, which allow it's very bike friendly. So I ride my bike a lot all throughout the year: winter, summer, spring, fall. Doesn't matter. Um, I do a lot of walking. I ride the train. I take the bus sometimes, and then I also have a subscription to a car. Uh, it's called Our Car. H O U R. 
in Minneapolis, similar to Zipcar. Mm. So it allows me to, gives me the flexibility to pick up a car when I need it for depending on the number of hours I need it for. And I typically will weigh out the cost of that versus an Uber. So if I have to make multiple stops in a short period of time, I'll pick up, I'll, I'll get my, my subscription car. Um, if I'm having to go maybe one place over the course of two, three hours, I'll just take the Uber. So I'm not paying per hour in my car. So yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I have a budget. I, you know, I, I have to pay for public transportation. I have to pay for the Uber. I have to pay for the subscription model. So I certainly have a, a transportation budget. I, I tend to come in below budget because I do enjoy just walking or biking to places. Um, and I'm sure but, probably secretly every month you're like, yay, yeah, one again. Yeah, that's where I, I thought you were myself. going. I thought, I thought you were going to say, because I really under enjoy budget, being under budget. Uh, winning, always. No, yeah, yeah. But then there were times when, like, I was on the way to the airport, and I forgot my driver's license. And oh, so no. I get to the airport. I took an Uber to the airport. No, yeah, I took an Uber to the airport. And then I had to take an Uber back home, take an Uber back oh. to the airport. So that that day was uh, a bludgeon-blown uh, day. But yeah, um, but yeah you know, I, I for me, the, the, the price of that car payment and the insurance, um, not being home all that often because I, I travel as a consultant speaker. So for me, that money is better spent in Patagonia or, yeah. you know, wherever my travels are taking me that month versus spending it on a car that is just going to depreciate and sit in the garage. And, and also living in an urban environment, I get a parking spot as part of my condo. So I can now turn around and rent that parking spot and actually make revenue. Look so at her. my Look flip at her. is actually a lot better. Look at now. her. <laughs> uh, well, Candace, uh, how can people follow you? What was that? How, How can people, people f- follow me? Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. It's I'm the Candace Crane. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Crane Auto HR. And my email is Candace Crane at CandaceCrane.com. And listeners, I'll put her contact information uh, on the episode page. Well, Candace, thank you for being on Wisco Weekly. I seriously appreciate um, all the insight that you're doing. I hope, God, I, I hope actually more people listen to this episode here so that you can infiltrate their organization and deploy your insight uh, into their organization so that it benefits myself and Kelly as customers. Well, I hope so too. And thank you so much for the opportunity. And I really love the fact that you wore a shirt with cars on it <laughs> this to is, the Women this... in Automotive Conference. Thank it's you. Very appropriate. Fist bump. Yes. Fist bump. <laughs> thank you guys. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wisco Weekly as we end every episode. Cheers. Prost. La crime. Kipis. Nastravi. Salud. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsins. Gambe. Yamas. Nastrovie. Vo to the customer experience.